This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about VPNs, or more precisely, it's about one VPN. Today's episode is notably different because it's not just missing a guest interview, but it's also including a personal story. Today, we're talking about what I did upon learning that my own chosen VPN provider was somewhat embroiled in a hiring decision turned international surveillance scandal. And if that sounds somewhat unbelievable, it is. On September 14th, Vice News reported that the U.S. Department of Justice had resolved an earlier investigation into three men who, while working for a company headquartered in the United Arab Emirates, had worked together to obtain zero-click exploits and then integrate those exploits into a computer and device hacking system called Karma. Karma was in turn used to reportedly surveil journalists, activists, and human rights defenders in countries including Yemen, Iran, Turkey, and Qatar, which I hear is actually pronounced closer to Qatar. Anyways, Karma was developed in secrecy under something called Project Raven, which was a covert offensive hacking operation that essentially took orders from the United Arab Emirates' NESA, or National Electronic Security Authority, which reportedly serves as the Emirates' NSA, or National Security Agency, here in the United States. And already, I assume you are thinking, I do not know where the United Arab Emirates is. I do not know the human rights activity of the region. I am unaware of the geopolitics between Qatar, Yemen, Iran, and Turkey. And that's fair. I did not know that the United Arab Emirates is actually seven separate emirates, each governed by their own sheikh. And I didn't know that the United Arab Emirates is actually considered an ally to the United States. I think that's fair that I didn't know that, and that I am assuming you didn't know that, because, well, we're not good at knowing international news. And in this case, particularly, how could we be? Considering that this underground hacking operation was, again, kept entirely secret for years. But where this massive international cyber spy tale starts to taper inwards is when we look back at the three men who were named by the Department of Justice. Because fewer than 24 hours after that Vice story came out, someone put together a name with a company. Daniel Gorecki, 40 years old, and named by the Department of Justice for violating U.S. export control, computer fraud, and access device fraud laws, is the current Chief Information Officer for ExpressVPN. Hmm, I thought, that's my VPN. Six days later, September 21st, a tweet was brought to my attention. If you're an ExpressVPN customer, you shouldn't be said Edward Snowden, the former defense contractor who exposed a massive U.S. surveillance regime largely built and controlled by the NSA. So let's just address this immediately because, look, I get it. Snowden's name is like a national security and privacy Rorschach test. He's a traitor. He's a hero. He's a leaker. He's a whistleblower. He's a Russian agent. He's a U.S. patriot. Frankly, for this story, 
I'm not interested in what people think of Snowden because factually, his revelations played an enormous part in my career. In 2013, I was a legal affairs reporter, and I remember the day that The Guardian published its investigations into the NSA surveillance mechanisms and programs. I remember my, oh my God, did you see this comments to my coworkers? And I remember reporting on these revelations from a legal perspective. I remember the Silicon Valley companies that were named in the Guardian stories telling me that they had no knowledge of one of the surveillance programs, then referred to as PRISM. I remember attending a banal panel discussion in a a high school gym, I think, just to get a chance to speak to Facebook's lead lawyer about this. And some years later, I remember being interviewed by Electronic Frontier Foundation for the role of NSA surveillance activist. I got that job, and I visited Washington, D.C., and I spoke with legislative directors for representatives and senators in Congress, and I read bill after bill after bill about how the reauthorization of a law called Section 702 would extend the warrantless capture of Americans' communications. And I remember losing that fight to stop Section 702's reauthorization because you almost always lose the fight against surveillance. And I remember how, at EFF, an interest in surveillance became an interest in all things digital privacy and all things digital rights. And now, I do that today at Malwarebytes, whether I am once again reading bill after bill after bill about how Americans will have their data collected, stored, shared, and sold, but by private companies this time, or when I'm talking to guests for the podcast from Mozilla and the Tor Project, that's coming up, by the way, and DuckDuckGo, or when I'm helping steer Malwarebytes' work in the Coalition Against Stalkerware. An enormous part of my work does honestly go back to what, in 2013, was exposed by Edward Snowden. Now, I've never met him, I've never spoken to him. My old boss did regularly, actually, because they're both board directors for the same nonprofit. And so the fact that, like, once a month I could just yell to the office next to me, hey, how's Snowden? And I would get a legitimate answer. And and one time I did about, like, his video conferencing software just not working correctly. That's a weird thing, admittedly. But what I'm rambling about here is that removed entirely from the discussion of hero or traitor, I have the job I have because eight years ago, someone blew the whistle on something that affected nearly every single American in the country, and likely just as many non-Americans. And after that, I needed to learn more. This, then, is the story about ExpressVPN, online privacy, international surveillance, and how... After first hearing about those things, I again needed to learn more. On September 7th, ExpressVPN's chief information officer, Daniel Gorecki, entered into what's called a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice. In that agreement, Gorecki accepted that he would pay $335,000 over the next three years to resolve multiple charges of violating U.S. export control laws, computer fraud laws, and access device fraud laws. Gorecki was not alone in this agreement. He was joined by two other men, Mark Bayer, 49 years old, and Ryan Adams, 34 years old. 
On September 14th, one week after the three men entered the deferred prosecution agreement, the U.S. Department of Justice actually announced that agreement. And in that announcement, the department also shared court documents that detail what exactly these three men did. Before we get into a rough timeline of their activity, I wanted to present up front what the Department of Justice found. According to the court documents, Bayer, Adams, and Gorecki all, among other things, quote, used illicit, fraudulent, and criminal means, including the use of advanced, covert hacking systems that utilized computer exploits obtained from the United States and elsewhere to gain unauthorized access to protected computers in the United States and elsewhere, and to illicitly obtain information, material, documents, records, data, and personal identifying information, including passwords, access devices, login credentials, and authentication tokens from victims from around the world. They also obtained, developed, modified, maintained, and used electronic systems designed for intelligence purposes to collect information without authorization from internet-connected computers, databases, and electronic systems in the United States and elsewhere. And they stole and fraudulently obtained, used, and trafficked in access devices, authentication tokens, passwords, and other means of accessing without authorization protected computers, including protected computers located in the United States and elsewhere, and obtained information of value that belonged to the owners and users of the protected computers, including protected computers located in the United States and elsewhere, such as personal and user data, communications, access devices, authentication tokens, and passwords. And this is just a few of the findings by the Department of Justice. But it's important to note here that on their own, these findings feel a bit flat to me. Like, like I felt my own eyes glazing over once I'd read the words electronic systems for like the 10th time. And that's fine. After all, these court documents are supposed to include citation after citation to U.S. criminal codes and acronyms for those codes and subsections that reference other subsections that reference another code's appendix. But as necessary as it is, it doesn't make for a uh, edge-of-your-seat reading. Thankfully, the Department of Justice also laid out, a little more clearly, a bit of a timeline detailing what Bayer, Adams, and Gorecki did. In 2014, Bayer, Adams, and Gorecki all work for the same company. That company, which is not named beyond the designation U.S. Company One, is likely a cybersecurity company, considering the three men's career backgrounds, but alas, we do not know. In 2015, though, a separate company headquartered in the United Arab Emirates poaches Bayer, Adams, and Gorecki from their jobs, offering what the Department of Justice called, quote, significant increases in their salaries. <laughs> now, for their first year at their new employer, Bayer, Adams, and Gorecki, according to the Department of Justice, aren't getting into too much trouble. They, they do play a role in obtaining some information from their past employer that they did not have clearance or approval for. But to me, this is honestly a small violation in a much bigger story. It's apparently a big story for export control, but it's a small story for me and, I must remind you, my choice in VPN vendor, which this is still about. In 2016, though, Things ramp up. Bear, apparently working on his own, obtains an exploit that can provide remote access to smartphones and mobile devices. He does this by making an agreement with a company based in the United States. 
They offer the exploit, and his employer will offer $750,000 in return. The court documents call this exploit Exploit 1. In the months following that exploit purchase, Bayer does this again, actually, because according to the Department of Justice, the company that makes the phones that were vulnerable to the first exploit actually caught it and released a security update. Without a workable exploit in hand, Bayer finds yet another company, also based in the United States, by the way, which is worrying in a way that we do not have time to dive into, and he procures yet another deal for what the Department of Justice calls Exploit 2. This time, Bayer's employer does not make a direct payment for Exploit 2. Instead, it uses wire transfers from another company that it controls. The price tag for Exploit 2, though, is $1.3 million. But all of that work was, according to the court documents, pretty much the isolated work of Bayer. So what did Adams and Gorecki do? Well, they used and improved a hacking apparatus for their employer. And they designed a way to implement both Exploit 1 and Exploit 2 into that hacking apparatus. This hacking system was called Karma. And Karma interestingly enough, showed up in a Reuters investigation back in 2019. As I said a few minutes ago, the Justice Department's documents were not entirely engaging for me. I learned that, yes, Bayer, Adams, and Gorecki were accused of knowingly causing and attempting to cause, quote, the transmission of a program, information, code, computer exploits, and commands, and as a result of such conduct, intentionally cause or attempt to cause damage without authorization to 10 or more protected computers during a one-year period, which I learned is a violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 1030, lowercase a, 5, uppercase a, and lowercase c, 4, uppercase B. I also learned that the three men were accused with knowingly and with intent to defraud, quote, use one or more unauthorized access devices during any one-year period, and by such conduct obtain a thing of value in excess of $1,000, end quote, which I learned again was a violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 1029, lowercase a2, and lowercase c, uppercase ai. And it went on like this for a little bit violations pertaining to dollar amounts and machine counts that seem arbitrary to me. But, and I think I'm not alone here in saying this, this doesn't mean much to me without context. This is me getting into the weeds. This is the trees. What I wanted to see was the forest. The Reuters investigation provided that. On January 30th, 2019, Reuters published an in-depth investigation into a previously undisclosed hacking operation in the United Arab Emirates called Project Raven, the very same Project Raven that I mentioned at the top of the show. Project Raven once operated from a converted mansion in Abu Dhabi called The Villa. It purposefully recruited former American intelligence operatives like cyber spies who previously worked for the NSA in the United States, seeking their expertise to exploit known vulnerabilities, and it successfully covered its tracks to the public for years. And starting in 2016, Project Raven began relying heavily on a hacking system called Karma. 
The Reuters investigation relies on conversations with former U.S. government hackers, some of whom worked for this country's NSA before joining and then eventually also leaving Project Raven. Project Raven was, until Reuters uncovered much of its details, an entirely secret hacking group providing offensive services to the United Arab Emirates' government. Though it had operations physically in Abu Dhabi, it had successfully recruited more than one dozen former U.S. intelligence operatives who, in their work, identified cybersecurity vulnerabilities and helped carry out surveillance of, quote, other governments, militants, and human rights activists critical of the monarchy. Project Raven was so secretive that it had two separate briefings for its employees based on those employees' level of involvement in the broader operation. The so-called Purple Briefing told new employees of a purely defensive mission within Project Raven. Protect the United Arab Emirates through defensive measures only. But after speaking to several former Project Raven operatives and after uncovering Project Raven documents, Reuters discovered a bombshell. The Purple Briefing was a cover. Deeper within Project Raven was the so-called Black Briefing, the real story behind Project Raven's mission. According to Reuters, the Black Briefing showed that Project Raven was not defensive and was instead, quote, the offensive operational division of the National Electronic Security Authority, or NESA, and will never be acknowledged to the general public. And NESA, according to Reuters, was the UAE's version of the NSA. Plainly, this was a covert government operation. According to the Black Briefing, Project Raven wasn't even called Project Raven. It was called the Development Research Exploitation Analysis Department, or as an acronym, DREAD. With the help of the elite U.S. hacking team, Project Raven operatives, quote, identified vulnerabilities in selected targets, developed or procured software to carry out the intrusions, and assisted in monitoring them. What that means is, Project Raven hacked iPhones. Project Raven selected people that the United Arab Emirates deemed worthy of surveillance and it asked its American operatives for ways to surveil those targets. But the actual decision to pursue that surveillance was never made by an American, so as to allow the Americans, quote, plausible deniability, end quote, said one of the former workers on the project. Project Raven operatives would also, quote, monitor social media and target people whose security forces felt had insulted the government, end quote said one former Project Raven hacker, who also previously worked for the NSA. Some days, it was hard to swallow, like when you target a 16-year-old kid on Twitter. But it's an intelligence mission. You are an intelligence operative. I never made it personal. Okay. Okay. Okay, we have to stop here a bit, because I'll just tell you right now. This moment in the Reuters investigation was what I will call the switch flip for me. And I want to be transparent here and say that I somewhat expected a switch flip, right? A, a moment in which while reading the Reuters story, I'd say, all right, my line has been crossed. I am out. And in fact, that assumption is, is why I read this story entirely out loud to myself with my microphone turned on. And yeah, you can hear it. 
here's that part of the story during my first reading. Under orders from the UAE government, former operatives said, Raven would monitor social media and target people whose security forces felt had insulted the government. Quote, some days it was hard to swallow. Like when you target a 16-year-old kid on Twitter, but it's an intelligence mission. You are an intelligence operative. I never made it personal. That's fucking... <laughs> well, I'm glad you never made it personal. I never made it personal. Wow, that makes it so easy. What you're hearing in that clip, particularly my emphasis on how the Project Raven operative never made it personal, what you're hearing, I think, is two confrontations. The first confrontation is with the Project Raven operative herself. Not making surveillance personal, despite being the agent that enables that surveillance. It's not just disappointing, it's also... It's kind of pathetic because to me, it comes off as an exceedingly weak defense mechanism, a compartmentalization that it's okay for some things to be bad so long as they are kept in a box away from view or recognition. But the second confrontation in that clip is a confrontation with a hollow excuse I've heard before that so long as something doesn't affect you personally, then it doesn't matter how bad it is. And I despise that excuse because it doesn't stay isolated. It often swells. And in that swelling, it seizes our capacity to care and to push back. It is an excuse that grows into not caring about anything that doesn't affect your family or your city, your state, your country. And the reason that excuse is so dangerous with surveillance is because it lets us become complacent for surveillance against people who don't look like us. But here's the thing. The excuse is denial, because surveillance regimes tend to grow, and they sometimes grow to include people who do look like you, no matter where you live. In 2012, Rory Donaghy, a British journalist, then 25 years old, had already become a, quote, key target, end quote, of Project Raven. Donaghy was not a terrorist. He had not planned attacks on citizens in the United Arab Emirates. He did not profess extremist views on social media. Instead, he criticized the United Arab Emirates for its human rights record. And he wrote in an article for The Guardian about a recent crackdown on activism in the country, warning that, quote, the future for those who continue to speak out looks bleak, end quote. This was nine years ago, and for the United Arab Emirates, it was a lifetime ago for surveillance capabilities. Prior to the country's recruitment of former intelligence operatives from America, the United Arab Emirates relied more on physical methods to track its targets. Uh, for instance, Emirati agents would have to physically break into homes to install spyware on a target's computer. But as Project Raven grew in sophistication, largely due to the contributions of Americans, the surveillance of Donaghy represented a new chapter. Instead of breaking into Donaghy's home, Raven operatives posed as a human rights activist who wanted to talk to Donaghy in secret. The bogus human rights activist then convinced Donaghy to download software that would make messages, quote, difficult to trace. In reality, the software was malware, obviously, that gave Emiratis visibility into Donaghy's email and web browsing activity. 
Donaghy remained a surveillance target for years, but he learned about the hacking activity on his own in 2015 with the help of Citizen Lab, a research institution at the University of Toronto that focuses on technology and human rights. For their investigation into Project Raven, Reuters called Donaghy to tell him that he was actually considered a top national security threat for five years. After which, Reuters also disclosed to him some information about Project Raven. Namely, that the operatives that had helped the campaign to surveil him were American. To which Donaghy reportedly expressed surprise and disgust. Donaghy said, It feels like a betrayal of the alliance we have. This is a long way of me saying that surveillance abroad can become surveillance at home. This happens today, actually, in a limited way in the United States. If the NSA selects a foreign person for surveillance and it collects that person's online communications, if an American has had communications with that foreign target, then the communications of that American are collected as well. And now I I know what you are asking, which is, well... Why is that American talking to that foreign agent to begin with? But I ask you, do you trust the NSA selection criteria when deeming who is worthy of surveillance? Do you trust the secretive judiciary machinery that approves that surveillance away from public view? Would you still trust them if I told you that in 2013, that same secretive court approved a request from the FBI? that Verizon deliver on an ongoing and daily basis to the NSA, quote, all call detail records or telephony metadata created by Verizon for communications, one, between the United States and abroad, or two, wholly within the United States, including local telephone calls. I was a Verizon customer in 2013 my phone number could be in that data dump. Now, admittedly, I am comparing the surveillance capabilities of two very different nations. At the time of that court order against Verizon, remember, though the U.S. had already built up various systems to intake data and sort and search through it, the United Arab Emirates was only starting to phase out physical break-ins for its digital surveillance. But as the years have progressed... That gap in capability has narrowed, mainly because of Project Raven's development of Karma, the computer hacking system that, according to a former White House cybersecurity czar under President Obama, only about 10 nations have the capability to develop. Karma could, quote, remotely grant access to iPhones simply by uploading phone numbers or email accounts into an automated targeting system. Karma relied on zero-click exploits, those sound familiar, which meant that, unlike with Donaghy, no surveillance targets had to be tricked into clicking a link or downloading a piece of malware to be tracked by the United Arab Emirates. In 2016 and 2017, Karma was, quote, used to obtain photos, emails, text messages, and location information from targets' iPhones. The technique also helped the hackers harvest saved passwords, which could be used for other intrusions, end quote. In those same years, Karma would, quote, be used against hundreds of targets across the Middle East and Europe, including governments of Qatar, Yemen, Iran, and Turkey. 
Karma was used to hack an iPhone used by the Emir of Qatar, which is the title of that country's monarch, who also goes by Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani. And Karma was used to hack the phones of the Sheikh's close associates and his brother. Karma was also used to hack the devices of Turkey's former deputy prime minister, Mehmet Shimshek, and Oman's head of foreign affairs, and it was used to hack a noted human rights activist known as the Iron Woman of Yemen, called as such because of her leadership in the 2011 Yemen uprising. Speaking of Yemen, the United Arab Emirates targeted an Emirati activist, so someone local to them named Ahmed Mansour, who often criticized his country's war in Yemen. And after a long surveillance campaign and an arrest in 2017, Mansour was eventually convicted to 10 years in prison on five charges, which, according to Human Rights Watch, included evidence against him such as, quote, tweeting about injustices, participating in international human rights conferences online, and since-deleted email exchanges and WhatsApp conversations with representatives of human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and the Gulf Center for Human Rights. And just four months after Mansour's arrest, Project Raven used Karma to hack into the phone of his wife. Karma is an advanced hacking system, and while it did not create the United Arab Emirates' appetite for surveillance, it certainly made it easier to feed. And according to the Department of Justice, Bear, Adams, and Gorecki did not just use Karma in their jobs, but with the exploits that Bear obtained, they all designed, implemented, and modified Karma. They helped Build it. All right, let's take a breather here, because I've been speaking for a while about very heavy things happening in countries that, I will be honest, I don't know much about. <laughs> and I've never visited them, I don't read their daily news, I can't name the seven different sheiks who govern the seven different emirates. And I'm okay with that. Because while I don't know the intricacies of Emirati governance, I, I actually do know a bit about the intricacies of government surveillance. And everything I've learned so far for today's episode, from the Department of Justice, from Reuters, from court documents, everything I've learned so far has only supported that this isn't okay. And I'm not alone in thinking that. In fact, as a nice conclusion to that Reuters investigation, as much as I found myself disliking the spies in that story, particularly the spy who, I will admit, bravely went on record about Project Raven and nakedly spoke about targeting a 16-year-old on Twitter. Even that spy, who I deeply disagreed with. Even she had a limit. In 2017, she found an American's passport page in a backlog of target assignments meant for a separate officer with the United Arab Emirates' NESA. She emailed her supervisors to complain, and she was told that the inclusion of the American's information was a mistake, and that the information would be deleted. But clearly something bothered her, because days later, she looked into a targeting list that was typically reserved for other members of Project Raven. And in that list, she didn't just find one-off inclusions of Americans. She found a whole category for Americans. The white category. She told Reuters, I was sick to my stomach. It kind of hit me at that macro level, realizing there was a whole category for U.S. persons on this program. 
Around 2017, she was kicked out of Project Raven, first put on leave and then escorted from the building. (laughs) Several other former U.S. intelligence workers told Reuters that they left Project Raven in 2015 because, according to Reuters, they felt, quote, unsettled about the vague explanations Raven managers provided when pressed on potential surveillance against other Americans. Knowing all of this, here's how I think the pieces fall into place. Many years ago, Daniel Gorecki and a couple of other men were recruited to work for a company headquartered in the United Arab Emirates for roles that would allow them to use their past expertise in cybersecurity. In those roles, Daniel Gorecki and many others helped build a dangerously effective hacking apparatus called Karma. Karma was deployed against hundreds of targets selected by the United Arab Emirates, and those targets included heads of state, journalists, human rights activists, and target's associates, and at least one target's brother, and another target's wife. As Karma evolved, so too did Project Raven's surveillance mission. According to ex-Raven members, Project Raven began targeting Americans for surveillance, a shift so dramatic and troubling that several of those employees left the operation in 2015. Those allegations of American surveillance were seemingly verified just last month by the U.S. Department of Justice. In related court documents, the Department of Justice showed that the exploits obtained by Bayer were used by Project Raven employees to, quote, illegally obtain and use access credentials for online accounts issued by U.S. companies and to obtain unauthorized access to computers like mobile phones around the world, including in the United States. There's some nuance here. Because the Department of Justice speaks about devices in the United States, and the ex-Raven operatives talk about targeting Americans, and a device in the United States can belong to a non-American, obviously. But let's look at the two angles we actually have here. Was it legal? The Department of Justice says absolutely not. Was it moral? I say absolutely not. So again, several years ago, a few men helped build a tool that invades privacy. And then, some years later, one of those men was hired by a company that makes a tool to protect privacy. ExpressVPN has a response to all of this. And imagine my surprise when I learned that the response stood firmly in support of Gorecki and the decision to hire him. Now, ExpressVPN explicitly said up front that it did not condone Project Raven and that, quote, the surveillance it represents is completely antithetical to our mission. ExpressVPN also announced new measures, including an increase in the, quote, cadence of our existing third-party audits to annually recertify our full compliance with our privacy policy, including our policy of not storing any activity or connection logs. And that's good. Like, that's a good start. But then ExpressVPN goes on to say that hiring Gorecki is defensible because it is part of a bigger strategy for protecting customers. Quote, to do that job effectively, to do it as we believe, better than anyone else in our industry, requires harnessing all the firepower of our adversaries. The best goalkeepers are the ones trained by the best strikers. Someone steeped and seasoned in offense, as Daniel is, 
can offer insights into defense that are difficult, if not impossible, to come by elsewhere. That's why there is a well-established precedent of companies in cybersecurity hiring talent from military or intelligence backgrounds, end quote. ExpressVPN wrote a second blog detailing how Gorecki has improved the security of their product and their company. He's built a skilled red team at the company and a beefed-up security operations center. He's smartly ensured that ExpressVPN monitor any commands executed by admins on the non-VPN servers, which absolutely, yes, that can prevent an adversarial breach. And he's identified and assessed novel flaws that could be exploited with the right background and know-how. And... I don't care. (laughs) I know that's crude, but I don't care. I don't care that someone who is likely paid a great deal of money, and by the way, I'm, I'm not just making that up and tossing that in there, right? Reuters reported that Project Raven analysts were paid more than $200,000 a year while managers could receive more than $400,000 a year, and I don't know of too many people taking pay cuts. I don't care that that person is good at their job, and I don't believe that the well-established precedent of companies in cybersecurity hiring talent from military or intelligence backgrounds, which is true, I don't believe that it supersedes the well-established facts of Gorecki's past work on Project Raven. This isn't about military background. This is about surveillance background. What I do care about is how ExpressVPN tries to support Gorecki while denouncing Project Raven, and how it attempts to applaud Gorecki's work at ExpressVPN while essentially ignoring his work on Karma. What I care about is that when I read that statement, I hear echoes of a switch flip. I read, and I see, and I interpret a compartmentalization that it's okay for some things to be bad so long as they are kept in a box away from view or recognition. On September 30th, I canceled my subscription. I bought a new VPN. Its user interface is noticeably worse. (laughs) But small sacrifices. That's our show. We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Isabella Bagueros, the executive director of the Tor Project. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.